This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is Afternoons on Dubai Eye 103.8. I'm Helen Farmer. Fantastic to have you with us on the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. On today's episode, real life stories, expert advice and a bit of a trigger warning. We are exploring eating disorders. Uh, I was chatting to not one, but two guests looking at anxiety. First of all, speaking to cognitive behavioural hypnotherapist Jenny Malam about how that technique can help. And anxiety in teens, a big concern right now, according to youth wellbeing expert Jasmine Navarro. So what can parents do when it comes to responding to those and some of the coping strategies? Too. We were having a special look at male infertility, why it's on the rise with Dr. Akhtar from the Corniche Fertility Centre. And we were in conversation with Dr. Ionis, a consultant psychiatrist and a number of survivors of eating disorders, sharing their journeys and also talking about why some people might be more susceptible. Plus the director of the Mabadla Abu Dhabi Open, sharing what's in store for fans and talking women in sports leadership. What advice would she give to young women who want to get into the industry? I think at some point... Every single person listening today will struggle with some kind of anxiety. But when does your day-to-day worries or even functional anxiety turn into something dysfunctional? Finding out now with Jenny Malam. She's a cognitive behavioural hypnotherapist. And we're going to be talking a little bit about CBT later as well, because I still truly don't understand what it is, despite talking about it quite a lot on the radio. Now, don't forget, we are talking teens and anxiety in particular after four o'clock today. So if you are worried about the young person in your life, feel free to reach out and we can put that aside for after four. Let's talk us grown-ups now because, Jenny, as I said, I have had a real bout of anxiety in the last couple of weeks and an awful lot of people I know are burning out, stressing out in a state of anxiety that just isn't really serving them. So I guess I want to ask, start by asking you, how are you today? <laughs> uh, well, my anxiety levels are pretty high at the moment um, just because I'm in a studio for the first time Um and being interviewed like this mm. for the first time. So I'd probably say my anxiety levels are probably on a maybe seven. And what are you doing about that kind of internally? Or what did you do before that to prepare for coming in? I'm very nice, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I know you are. Um, well, probably I'm, I'm practising what I preach, right? So, um, of course, you know, when we feel a sense of anxiety, it's because our brain's telling us we're in danger. Mm-hmm. So a couple of really good, um, I, I guess, tools right there is the kind of deep breathing, something called box breathing that we do, which is to relax the nervous system um, and keeping a, an eye of the thoughts, to be honest, mm-hmm. uh, because essentially it's our thoughts that, that trigger the anxiety. And then it becomes this, it becomes a physical manifestation and that seems to kind of accelerate things. People start to feel that heart rate going. For me, I just get like a pounding Absolutely. chest and, you know, the sweaty palms and, and all of that. Now, as you say, anxiety can, it can really serve us. It is there to protect us in so many ways. And sometimes it can make you perform better. Absolutely. You know, it, we, we need a certain we level. Do. Of, we do need a certain level of anxiety to, like you say, to perform. Um, it's just when it kind of trickles into that day-to-day living when it becomes debilitating, mm-hmm. um, which is when we need to, to keep a close eye on it. Now, you might completely disagree with me, 
on this, but I think a lot of people are kind of self-diagnosing anxiety as a disorder on themselves rather than just going, do you know what, I'm going through I'm going through a stressful time right now. I've yeah. got a lot on my plate. There's some circumstances, there's hormones, there's kids, there's work, there's a lot, there's a lot going on. Exactly. And it feels like a bit of a generation thing of oh, I've got an anxiety disorder. It's like you're probably a bit worried about work. You don't need to stick a label on it, but there are things you can do. That's right. Yeah, it's used so flippantly. It you know, is, right? everyone uh yeah, just it, there's a difference between kind of debilitating anxiety and anxiety as a normal emotion, mm-hmm. you know. And I think we don't talk about it enough as a normal emotion that we need to experience. Totally. We've got, we've in this kind of must be happy all the time. If yeah. we're not happy all the time, then something's wrong with our lives. We've got to make some changes. Like, it's all right to have a, a yeah. bad day from time to time. But when those bad days become more and more frequent, and as you're saying, it's stopping you from doing day to day things, then that's perhaps when you need to have a have a, a bigger chat yeah, than just yeah. offloading your worries to a partner or yeah, a friend. Yeah, it's time to reach out definitely and, and seek some professional support. Now, looking outside today, it's a bit, bit gloomy. Um, I'm wondering, how does our environment, whether that's our home, whether people we surround ourselves with affect our anxiety, Jenny? Hugely. I mean, um, if we just look at Dubai living, right, it's pretty fast paced. Um, it's, uh, we don't really have the support network from our, fr- from our family and our friends from home. Um, so it's the hours of work as well, of course. So we, ha- I think largely, um, a lot of those factors don't help. Mm-hmm. Um, also this idea of, um, you know, you can have it all, <laughs> you know, we've been fed these lies really that, uh, especially for working mothers, you know, that we can have the career, uh, we can do, you know, be, be a great mum and, um, or parent just generally, uh, and, and you can't do it all. You just can't do it all. So I think there's a, a lot. Social media obviously doesn't hasn't help. helped at all. No, it the co- constant comparison that we all have, you know, constantly comparing our lives to other people. Yeah, she can do it. Why can't I? Absolutely. So all that contributes. Jenny Malam is with us this afternoon. She's a cognitive behavioural hypnotherapist. And if you've got any questions relating to anxiety and coping, please don't hesitate to get in touch. You can be anonymous. Doesn't matter at all. Just put no name, make up a name, make up a whole identity. But do know that between now and five, we've got some brilliant, brilliant people on hand to help you. So can we talk a little bit about when it gets too much? Because there's so many routes you can go down. You know, it could be a family doctor that you've known for a long time. It could be going straight to a psychologist or, you know, counsellor. Uh, we're speaking to a psychiatrist after three o'clock today. Um, where do you think CBT has a role? Uh, CBT essentially looks at the way negative thoughts um, kind of contribute to your feelings. Okay, so, you know, it's it's not the same as mindfulness, but it That's creates... I can't do that. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people say the same, Helen. Um, but it just creates some awareness to the thoughts how and could you give us some examples in terms yeah, of the so, situations where you've seen it be really effective yeah, so thoughts affect um how you feel and that feeling affects then how you behave so if you can if you can kind of monitor your thoughts um and then start to what i call kind of categorize them so quite often um you know most of us will catastrophize will mind read Mm -hmm. you know we've got this kind of all or nothing thinking um so we have around sixty thousand thoughts a day and about 90 percent of those are the same as yesterday okay and then 80 percent of those thoughts are negative that means forty five thousand negative thoughts each day 
So if we can start to, and obviously you're not going to write down all those thoughts, but the, we, we're defaulting, right? We're defaulting to the same way of thinking. So it, CBT helps with recognising those negative thoughts, labelling those, um, and stopping yourself before you kind of go down into that rabbit hole, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. I'm just trying, I'm just doing like a little mental Rolodex of all my negative thoughts over the course of the day. What are some of the common ones that you hear from clients that are starting to be intrusive, really? Well, I would say, well, the brain um, kind of time travels, right? So we live almost exclusively through memory through the past or through the future. It's how the brain is is designed, right? So... Um, quite often it's going over, you know, um, worst case scenarios, mm-hmm. you know, are the worst, you know, what if, what if, those what if thoughts. So what if I don't perform well in that board meeting? They're going to think I'm an idiot. Absolutely, I'm not going to get yeah. a pay rise. I'm, you know, I mean, I I'm, certainly I'm like... had quite a few, you know, before coming here, you know. So um, it's, <laughs> it, it, it's literally ca- catastrophizing or, or the worst case scenario, this, this what if, what if, what if, or, and it's just the way our brain it's or, what it does to protect us. Or as you say, kind of looking back, being, I should have done that, I should have said that, I'm or an that, idiot, you know, yeah. all, all of that. Yeah, so um, it, it's a good place to start, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of, of, of anxiety. And it's been proven very effective with anxiety because, the, as I said, the thought affects the feeling, that affects the behaviour. If we can work on the thought part... Um, we can change the outcome, we can change the feeling, we can change the behaviour. Can you kind of demystify what might happen if we were to come to you for a session? Because I think, you know, you hear the words hypnotherapist, you're like, oh, I'm going to be vulnerable, yeah, I'm going to be, not, you know, clucking yeah. like a chicken. You know, you know what I mean? <laughs> I'm not a stage hypnotist. You're going to be eating, an, eating an onion like an apple. <laughs> Definitely not, no. Good, okay. uh, or clucking like a chicken, no. Um, no, I think, um, you know, we... Childhood plays a big part and... Talking therapy is 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 good for that, and I think it's always really important to understand the root cause. Okay, root cause of some of this kind of anxious anxious kind of disposition that we have. Um, but typically, a CBT therapist will 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 work on solutions. Right, we're a, it's a solutions approach, so mm. we'll just work on understanding some of those kind of core beliefs, um, looking at your your behaviours, your triggers. Um, and just working on, on, on a treatment plan around how we can change some of those. And the hypnosis really is used as an adjunct to the CBT in terms of it's, it's relaxation, it might be used for desensitisation to something. It's used as, it's like a guided um, meditation, if you like, or a magical exposure, that kind of thing. A great question from Matt saying, can you do this in one session? I mean, I, I, that's going to very much depend on, on what you're dealing with. But have you seen results from someone coming in? And- yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. The, the thing is, the way the brain's programmed, it's probably had, depending on how old you are, 30 mm-hmm. odd years or 40 odd years of thinking in this same default way. Um, so we're changing neuron pathways. So yes, there's definitely some exercises and things that we can give you to get you going. But um, there might be some stuff that you need to unpack first before we can kind of move forwards. And I'm not talking about major panic attacks or really dysfunctional anxiety now, but really if someone has got an occasion coming up, something that they're dreading, or perhaps they are feeling overwhelmed in, in the moment. It's today. very good for that. Is there anything we could be doing at home this evening or as we drive? Do not advise well, closing you know, eyes. <laughs> anxiety's best friend is avoidance. So if you've got something coming up, it's... It, it will one don't avoid it to practice we, you've, you've, you've got to practice I feel like you're speaking to my soul right now because <laughs> I am so good at procrastinating on things that are yeah. giving me stress I'm like la yeah. la 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 I'll yeah, deal with that next we all, week yeah as we all are so 
take it on head on okay um number of messages going how to get in touch what is the best way of reaching out to you jenny uh so i'm on instagram uh my instagram account is jenny malam therapist and i've also got uh, a website called open minds therapy there you go you can send me the word mind and i will send you jenny's details absolute pleasure to meet you properly it's so so appreciate um all of your insights this afternoon i love that anxiety's best friend is avoidance Oh, my goodness me. That spoke to my soul. Jenny Malin, if you do want her details, get in touch. Mona's just saying, amazing show as always. Can I get her contact? Of course you can, Mona. I'll send that to you right now. We undeniably live in a time where anxiety is spreading like an epidemic amongst teenagers. And anxiety can be really complicated and really prevalent for an awful lot of people. But... A teenager in particular can find it hard to deal with because of, yep, hormonal changes, peer pressure, the added stress of phones constantly buzzing. And according to the National Institute of Mental Health in the US, about a third of teenagers, so those aged 13 to 18, have experienced some sort of anxiety problem. So what can help? Chatting now with Jasmine Navarro, certified family and youth wellbeing expert. And um, I guess I want to ask you, how are your anxiety levels today? Well, actually, it's funny that you say that. Because, oh, no. <laughs> um, I mean, I walked here. Well, my plan was to walk here today because it's very good. I find that really helps with my anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually, it wasn't a very good idea because I got lost on the way. Oh, no. So I thought, OK, that's fine. I'll just get to take a taxi. But there weren't any taxis, probably because of the rain. Mm-hmm. And there was no way I was going to make it. And I was like, oh, no, what if I don't make it? So then I started, you know, feeling anxious and I thought, okay, I'm just going to have to ask somebody to, if they don't mind taking me. Did you? <laughs> yeah, so oh because it was God. either that. No, I'll tell you what, <laughs> next time you just go, Helen, I can't get there. Can we chat on the phone? And I go, yeah, don't get into a stranger's car, please, on my behalf, okay? But I, I don't know, yeah, so I just stopped oh my God, somebody. Did you? Yeah, I just stopped somebody. Because I thought, for me, I felt more anxious phoning to say that I can't make it because... For me, I have to make it. I have to make it. We'll do, like, a, we'll, do I... a, we'll do a separate show on people pleasing another time. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm glad you're here. And Sh- oh, and I wanted to thank. Amir. Yeah, I, was, I was about to say shout out to whoever safely delivered you to the ARNHQ. Um, what about dealing with anxiety in the past? When, when you look back to your teenage years, that's what... a really good question because yeah, as a teenager, I did suffer a lot with anxiety, and. But And I actually labelled myself, okay, I have anxiety and this is something that I'm always going to have. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Because I think, you, I think you know, when I think back to kind of my teenage years, 20 plus years ago, <laughs> we didn't necessarily talk about anxiety. We'd be like, oh, she's a bit of a worrier. Do you know what I mean? Yes, or nervous. Very yeah, nervous. Yeah, nervy. Yes, exactly. So I just labelled myself this. I'm anxious and that's just who I am. And I, of course, I hated the anxiety. Mm-hmm. And I think when you hate your emotions, you do start hating yourself, but that's something else as well. Um, But fast forward 20 years when I finally realised I don't have to just be a person with anxiety, you know, and that's when, that's what I wanted to talk about today. So we're heading heading some things off at the pass, really, noticing anxiety and worries in teens. So I wondered, you know, what are you hearing from teenage clients and their family? Can we give a bit of a read of the room when it comes to Dubai and that age group? Well, yeah, it's just always the same. You know, I'm I'm feeling I have anxiety. I have anxiety. But what does it's that mean? Because that... that means different things to different people. So what kind of behaviours are, are you seeing or what kind of worries are teens reporting? Well, worrying about what people think. Of course, worrying about their grades. 
But yeah, worrying about what people think, fitting in. Mm, that tribal, exactly. I want to I belong. Exactly, exactly. Not belonging. That's exactly being different. Now, I guess the difference between, you know, us being teenagers and teenagers in 2023 is this massive thing called social media. And we were just hearing earlier from Basma about how it actually was a really source of strength and information for her when she was going through an eating disorder. And I think that's really important to stress. I'm definitely not about demonising social media. I no. think it can be an amazing place for connection and communication and collaboration and all of that good stuff. But it can be a massive source of anxiety. And this has been proven time and time again, especially in teenage girls. Um, so I think that's kind of the elephant in the room, really, that kind of constant notification and co- constant comparison as well. That's true. But I think it's really important to distinguish, you know, if you're feeling, you know, if you're in a healthy mindset and you're on social media, then it's going to be different to if you're feeling very anxious and you're not in a healthy mindset. Totally. Yeah. So, And also who you're following. Of course, who, exactly, and the algorithms. Yeah, who's, com- who's you know getting, you know, you, who your eyes are on, what you, what your brain's absorbing, which you do have an element of control over, of course. Yes. Um, what, a lot of the questions we've had from parents are, I guess, a bit baffled, a bit not not knowing yes, how to deal yes, with yes, this, yes. and I wondered if it, how a parent should respond to their teenage son or daughter who comes to them with very often often valid worries, but sometimes irrational worries yes. and anxieties as well. What, what would you recommend saying or indeed not saying, Jocelyn? I think the most important thing I've learned from my personal experience and professional experience with anxiety is, and I'm not talking about anxiety disorders. This is anxiety, the human emotion, a normal human emotion, you know, is our relationship with anxiety. So it's really, really, what has changed my life, and I believe it's changing my clients' lives as well, is... It's, I know it might sound crazy, but it's, yeah, it's how we react to the anxiety, which is key. Okay, um, We need to embrace this anxiety, number one. We need to love the anxiety. It's the, the relationship we have with anxiety. Really? Because it's, a human, it's our human emotion, and it's given us a message. It's trying to keep us safe, and there's a message there. So I think once we start, that's the first step. Let's love our anxiety and I know it sounds crazy but it's part of us we must love it and also there are different techniques as well we're going to be talking about some of the techniques in just a couple of minutes do get in touch if you've got any questions any worries um we're going to hear from a number of you on the text line but first of all I just want to play out this message this is from an anonymous mum whose son is struggling um my son is 15 years old and he has been anxious since last year but now I'm worrying more about him because it's getting worse. This happened when his best friend left Dubai, left the country, and it started affecting him. But this year, he's starting um, isolating himself and not talking too much to us. And I'm being anxious as well now because I don't know what to do, especially that it's getting worse, like it's not even getting any better. So I think this is really speaking to just how powerless a lot of parents are feeling. Now though, we are talking teens and anxiety. And I want to be really clear, we're not talking about anxiety disorders, which absolutely do require speaking to a doctor, a medical health professional, but about those day-to-day worries that might be holding them back in social situations, getting in their own way when it comes to exams and so much more with certified family and youth wellbeing expert, Jasmine Navarro. Um, I want to go to the, quickly to the text line because a lot of people are just 
really concerned. And this kind of message does summarise a lot of the messages we've had on this topic, both through social media and on 4001, saying, my son is 13 and I'm honestly shocked at how stressed out he and his friends are. It's not social or social media, it's purely academic. We're very careful not to pressure him, but the school is relentless about testing in grades. We're really thinking about moving schools, but worry that this is across Dubai. That's an anonymous message. Jasmine, what those academic pressures, that was a big thing for me at school. It really, really was. And I feel like Dubai is a bit of a, well a hot spot for it too. What's been your take working with clients and their families? That's true, yeah. Exam pressure, grades and all of this. And it's, it does link to a lot of the times wanting to be liked. So getting the good grade, so they're liked. Mm-hmm. Um, one teenager said to me, if I'm perfect at my grades, I will never be criticised. So that was quite... Um, but I think... I, I don't know if the parents want to speak to the school. I don't know. But I think... Does her, the son, how much pressure is he putting on himself? Mm-hmm. Because I think that's the key, the mm-hmm. pressure that they put on themselves. And they need to be aware of this. So maybe she could ask him some questions. You know, how do you feel about this? You know, what, how much pressure are you putting on? But also there's processing as well. Like when he's really stressed, I think processing, which I learned with the coactive method, has been life-changing for me. Okay, this means nothing to me. <laughs> so you're going to have to break it down. Let's talk about some tools and coping strategies. So... And this, yeah, changed my life. So the first thing is for the teenager to sit down, and adults can do this as well. Obviously, when they've got some space, safe space, sit down. It takes five minutes. Take a deep breath. Close. They can close their eyes. Can I do it right now with you? Yes, yes, do it now. Okay, yes, (laughs) we'll do it together. People driving do not do this. has changed my life, seriously. Okay. So, yeah, if you like to close your eyes, take a deep breath. Breathe in, breathe out. And I would like you... So do you give me permission to do this? I do, even though we're on live national radio. <laughs> Thankfully not on Facebook Live. But yes, Jasmine, I do give you permission. I might stop you any time. Thank you. Of course you can. Of course okay. you can. So if you can scan your body mm-hmm. and tell me the dominant feeling that you feel and where is it in your body? Oh, I feel very settled and heavy in my chair, but I do have quite a lot of heaviness, too much heaviness between my shoulder blades and in my neck. Okay. Can you tell me what colour that is? Dark blue. Dark blue. Mm. Um, is it a liquid? Is it solid? Um, it's like a heavy liquid, almost like a mercury. Okay. Is there a movement? Yeah, it's dragging down. It's dragging down. Mm-hmm. What else? What else? Um, everything else feels pretty translucent. Um, it's just this one area that I can feel a real heaviness around. And are there any more feelings that are coming up with this? Apart from feeling a little bit silly, No. And if you can picture yourself now, Hmm. what can you see? If I can picture myself. Yeah, it might be hard to do this. Surrounded by cameras. Um, (laughs) You can visualize yourself somewhere. I actually see myself kind of from behind, um, almost from like above from behind my head. Okay. And what are you doing? I'm just just sitting where I am. I'm looking pretty calm, pretty settled. Yeah. Okay. Um, And what's important about that? I mean, I'm, oh my God, what's important about that? I haven't been feeling very calm over the last couple of weeks, so I think I'm just enjoying that sensation. Okay. And what are you aware of now in your body? Um, interestingly, I've got warmth down the back of my arms, so I'm feeling quite comforted. Ah, okay, okay. And can you notice any other feelings? Um, no, that's, okay. that's where I'm at. 
Okay, so that's just like a, a tiny, tiny. God, I'm just opening my eyes and I'm like, Whoof. I know we could have done that for ages. But the, the, the aim of this is to really connect yourself with your body and your feelings. And you connected, like, you know, you said the colour, you described everything. The more detail you have with mm-hmm. that feeling, the easier it is to process it and then let it go. Because feelings, we need to feel them. But we're so often... I think that my, my problem is, this is all very well and good, you and me sitting, you know, doing a job I love with someone I like talking. You know. yes. But when I'm in the absolute state of overwhelm, I don't have the presence of mind to do that. When I'm feeling like, like you know, flapping around and there's you know, so much going on, I've got to do this and this is going... Yes, yes. The thought of taking even 30 seconds to do that, I'm like, well, that just feels like something else I, could, I you know, have to do. That's so, the thing. You, you do have to yeah, stop and do this. Do that. And to know that it's worth it. Do, teen, do teens respond to this as well? Yes, they do. They do. And we do future visualisations as well. So what does that mean? Well, um, you know, so you relax take a deep breath and and I, I think I heard one of your guests talking about this earlier um thinking about what they would like to have in the future as well mm. so they get themselves in a state that they want to be in a desired state and so they realize it's accessible they so, can that, so that could be it. something like before an exam for example just to you know I want to be feeling calm and in control and present exactly. and bright yes it's just so they know they have access to this these feelings Ooh. And they, uh, it works very well with teenagers. It's very easy as well. Um, I guess I wanted to ask you about a bit of breathing as well. Um, is there any, any other tools that people could be trying with their teens or indeed as, you know, adults listening today as well? Oh, definitely breathing helps. Definitely deep breaths. But like I said, you do need to stop. So you do need to, if you can feel yourself being feeling anxious, or overwhelmed, it's time to stop. Let's mm. stop. Take two minutes. I've got two minutes. Everyone has two minutes. And let's close our eyes and take five deep breaths. The deeper the breaths, the better. We've run out of time. I haven't run out of questions, though, which just goes to show just how many parents are worried about about their teens. We're going to absolutely revisit this in the future. So please, 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 in the meantime, I hope everything's okay out there. I'd like Jasmine's advice about you know speaking to school. But again, if it is tipping into, as we established earlier, you know, dysfunctional anxiety, then you know, going to the doctor absolutely give you get you on the path there for anything that they might need. In the meantime, though, for any kind of coaching, be it career, educational, stress and anxiety, what's the best way of being in touch with you? Um, my Instagram with Nava. There you go. If you want the details of that, just send me um, the word anxious, anxiety, whatever you like. I will get that over to you. We're talking fertility on the show and I have to say much of the conversation about fertility is very much looking at women. But we are shining a light on men today with Mr. Mohammed Akhtan Atta, the chief of Cornish Fertility Centre, division chief, I should say, in Abu Dhabi. He's a consultant gynaecologist, extensive experience in looking at male and female fertility, recurrent miscarriages, failed IVF cycles, and we're looking at male infertility. Um, Dr. Mohammed, thank you for being with us. And as I said, a, a much needed uh, time to be discussing the, the male part of this, so to speak. Um, I've been reading reports and, and hearing anecdotally from doctors such as about male infertility increasing. What, what do you say to that? What do the studies show or what are you seeing in clinic? Uh, thank you very much, Helen, for having me. You're welcome. Uh, and as you correctly identified, male infertility is on the rise. We always look at infertility and we always uh, look at females to begin with, but male infertility is rising. And the reason is that there's a lifestyle changes have occurred in last 
couple of decades, which has had a significant impact. If you look at this semen quality over the last 50 years, there's a decrease significantly. And interestingly, every time the World Health Organization look at the new semen analysis report, it's, we lower the threshold to make it more normal. So the reason behind this is, again, increased risk, uh, rates of obesity, poor diet, our lifestyle factors, and exposure to environmental toxins, mm -hmm. which is leading us to this tsunami of male infertility situation, which we're embracing in our uh, daily uh, life. The, the stat I heard was that one in 15 men will have an infertility issue, and this number is going to increase in, in years to come. Does that sound about in line of, of what you're reading? What, what would you say that number would be at? I, the number was in past was one in six, then going to one in 10. Now currently is one in 15, okay. according to the uh, data, and it will continue to rise. And it will up to, up to one in 25. We think this will be reaching up quite soon. Dr. Mohammed, I wanted to address something of a, a common misconception, which is, you know, women's fertility drops off a cliff at age 35, uh, but men can keep on, you know, keep on keeping on and having babies into their 60s, 70s, 80s, and even even longer. Um, but I guess I wanted to ask you about, about men's fertility and the quality of that semen after the age of 30, 40. What do we see there in, in terms of not just ability to, you know, not just being fertile, but also the quality um, and any kind of genetic issues that might come into play, which is something we do talk about when it comes to women, the geriatric mother. I, I won't go that far, the geriatric mother. But <laughs> Thank you. I, I hate that phrase. I, I, yeah, I, I, what, what I will say to you, that the, may age in men also have a significant impact. We, uh, the significant data has come that these uh, DNA damage, which is in sperm because of age or other have lifestyle mod, uh, changes, for example, smoking, has a detrimental impact and even causes of miscarriage. Mm -hmm. The age currently is, is about 40 when the uh, semen quality and the risk of genetic conditions increase. Uh, in, in UAE, in the Department of Health, the guidance is that any gentleman who's above 50, they when they're coming for any infertility treatment, they should have genetic screening for their embryos because there's a high risk of genetic abnormality. Can you break that down for us a little bit? You know, let's say you've got a couple coming to you. And in fact, before we even get to that, when we, when we think about when we should be speaking to a doctor about any kind of assisted help um, in having a baby, how long should you be trying before you would deem it to be something that an expert might need to look at? The uh, evidence suggests uh, one year, but also bearing in mind the age of the woman and also age of the uh, man with also having any prior history of any medical conditions or surgical uh, situations they've encountered or anything they have encountered from birth. Uh, so this is why it's important. The sooner, the better. This one message is that sooner, the better. The moment you think about it, even if you think it's all good, it's better to check. Because the data is, you know, it's we do not know till we actually look at the individuals. Makes a lot of sense. Um, and also, let's break that down a little bit in terms of that testing. When you start to investigate some of the reasons, and you know, let's be honest, sometimes there is no discernible reason why a couple would be struggling to start a family. But sometimes you very much can point to specific factors. 
what what does the testing look like when you're looking at a at a woman you're looking at you know follicles you're looking at number of eggs quality of eggs but in a man what kind of screening is done and how straightforward is that for for anyone that might be feeling a bit intimidated or mystified by that process doctor the, it's quite a simplistic test uh, the basic test is semen analysis and uh, from the basic testing we can actually look at quite a lot of information about the health of the uh, individual. And if then required to be have blood hormone test, again, a simplistic test, similarly for what a woman has to go through. And, but they're more complex tests, but they're not required as much as what we men deem or think that this will be required. There's very, very few men will require that. So I think the first thing is have the basic test done so at least understand where your fertility potential is, as I say, and from there onwards, you can identify it. And then one thing which is very important and for all your listeners to understand that help is there. There is treatments available, which are quite simplistic and quite easy, but we need to uh, identify them earlier on before, you know, it's too late. Well, let's talk about some of those things that, you know, can can improve quality of semen and, and boost men's fertility. And I'm talking about before we get to the stage where we might have identified a problem. So for anyone listening today who might be thinking about starting a family, any any young men out there, I say young, you know, under 50, let's say, and what can they be doing to to boost their fertility at home, whether that is diet, supplements, lifestyle, and then we can talk about treatment if you have identified a problem later. So lifestyle first is to... Avoid certain things, for example, smoking. We do need to have regular exercise, making sure that your diet is uh, balanced and healthy. You know, poor diet is also related to poor sperm quality. Mm-hmm. Also, making sure that obesity is not there. You know, at least we did, or we are on the other side, not, you know, you're on, on the verge of losing significant amount of weight. And also managing stress levels which is a simplistic uh, it thing. It sounds very easy, manage. doesn't it? Then, come on with I, it. I know. <laughs> just, just be less stressed. <laughs> but what, 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 can, what kind of impact can you see on, I guess, lower, lower levels of stress when it comes to fertility? No, it's very hard to, to, to quantify, but is it, is it significant? It, it, it is significant, but on the other hand, so simple exercise like swimming, okay, okay early morning walk, okay? Sometimes just having... 20 minutes just rest and stop everything so they, you have to manage stress because the life is becoming more and more stressful mm-hmm. and it impacts significantly on our hormones uh, so late night working very late night working is not as good as you know early morning work so all this has to be managed because this is all hormone related impacts I'm also I- what Sorry, I've just got a couple of messages that I want to get to on the text line. Um, Danny's asking, we, we're hearing about women freezing their eggs when they're younger. Should men be freezing their sperm? Great question, Danny. What would you say to that? Um, excellent question, Danny. Very good question. Because if you have any underlying health condition, or even you think it's going to have an impact from your lifestyle, it is better to freeze always have to freeze better. Mm -hmm. For example, very common condition, diabetes, it is better to freeze in young age, even though you're fertile, because the DNA damage to sperm will be lower in younger age than later on with exposure to environmental toxins. Okay, great question. Great answer. No name on this one. You can be anonymous getting in touch saying, does does testosterone, low or high, affect men's semen or infertility? 
Another ex excellent question. Testosterone is like a contraceptive pill to a man. If somebody is taking testosterone, it's like you're on a contraception. It will have significant impact on sperm quality and semen. And actually, you will be becoming infertile. So in, if there's any reason for you to take testosterone, it's better to freeze your sperm before. And if you're taking it, you have to stop it, see a specialist who deals with it, and then we can give you some medications and hopefully get sperm back on track, freeze, and then you can, if we're required for this. Sometimes testosterone is required for certain medical conditions, mm -hmm. and we can do this with quite easily. Okay. Um, and Dr. Mohammed, I wanted to ask you, if you do identify by, you know, through those simple screenings that there's low sperm count, poor sperm mobility, um, what are some of the treatments, um, whether it is, you know, medical or otherwise, that you tend to recommend um, before perhaps going down the IVF route? So first of all is, again, trying to identify any lifestyle factors or any medical or surgical uh, situation for that individual. If then required, then simple uh, medications like multivitamins with zinc, selenium, okay, or I call it with our lifestyle factors, having uh, improved diet with the same component which you can buy over-the-counter multivitamins. Or then medications which can boost your uh, sperm or semen quality and uh, which could be oral medications or injectables and then if really in very rare cases a surgical intervention is required which, which is very rare but most of the things can be done but it's more holistic you have to look at each individual on its merit and has to do it individual uh, treatment so it's not cannot be fixed for everyone. Really appreciate your time. I know you're incredibly busy there at the Kunish Fertility Centre. So thank you, Dr. Mohammed, for sharing some insights there. And uh, food for thought, I think, for a lot of people, as you're saying, kind of being proactive, making changes and making sure the man has equal responsibility when it comes to uh, making sure we're in good health before starting a family. Thank you so much for your time. All the very best. Dr. Mohammed Asan Akhtar speaking to us from the Kunish Fertility Centre where he's a consultant gynaecologist. If you want his details, drop me a little message. My goodness, what should we say? Saying fertility? I was thinking of sperm, but don't send that. 4001. Use your ARN Play app. You've got the WhatsApp as well. Be very happy to connect you. I think really, really worthwhile conversation there. Um, and don't forget, you can be anonymous if you've got any questions here on Dubai I 103.8. Just want to give you a little heads up. We are talking about eating disorders on the show this afternoon. So if there's something that you're going to find upsetting or triggering, I just want to give you the opportunity to, to understand that. It is that time of year where so many of us, quote unquote, try to be healthy. But what if changing your diet, restricting calories, obsessing over food tips into disordered eating? We're talking about the signs to look out for in your own behaviour and that of loved ones now with Dr. Ionis, a DHA licensed consultant psychiatrist and the medical director of Thrive Wellbeing Centre. And we're going to be hearing from some people who have been through this, lived through this um, later in the show as well. Dr. Ionis, thank you so much for being with us today. Um, I've had a lot of questions, a lot of messages on this, which just goes to show that if it's not on the rise, and certainly concerns about eating disorders are on the rise. But before we get to the messages and, and the, the deeper questions, I wanted to ask you, from, from your point of view as a psychiatrist, what is your definition of an eating disorder exactly? Good afternoon, Helen. Thank you for hosting me on air. You're welcome. Um, eating disorders are illnesses, and illnesses that are associated with severe disturbances 
in people's eating behaviors and their related thoughts and emotions. So people with eating disorders are usually extremely preoccupied with food, what kind of food may or may not take, their body weight and their shape. So this is a little bit of a definition of what an eating disorder means. And we have several types of it. Mm-hmm. If you could unpack those, I still think there's a little bit of confusion around the different types of disorders. Um, so if you wouldn't mind, perhaps just the, the most common ones that you've seen in clinic here in Dubai particularly? Uh, yes, the common types of eating disorders are anorexia nervosa, and I believe that from the psychiatric point, psychiatric point of view, it's the most severe. Mm-hmm. It's the condition where a person avoids foods. Uh, they, avoid, they avoid also, uh, they restrict up to starvation sometimes. And as we can possibly imagine, this is a life-threatening situation. Absolutely. Um, they, can, they can be undernurtured, they can lose weight, but still there's the feeling of, I'm overweight, so I need to lose more. Mm-hmm. It's, um, it is, uh, it's, anorexia has the highest mortality rate of any psychiatric disorder um, and, and really does need to be taken incredibly seriously. I myself lost a friend to anorexia last year and it, it absolutely blindsided me. This is a girl that I'd worked alongside for a number of years and we didn't live in the same country anymore, but we're still friends. And I think I just assumed that she was going to get better. I, it hadn't occurred to me that she might die from this. And in the end... She was young, you know, she was mid-30s, but her body just stopped working. Her, her body just gave up. And that really brought it home to me just how serious we need to take this and, and recognise this in our young girls, our teenagers, and, and also in, in adults because it can develop really at any age. When do you tend to see um, anorexia developing, um, generally speaking, if you're okay to, to give us a bit of a, a demographic as such? Um, if... We can say for sure that we have a broad range of, uh, of uh, age range when it comes to eating disorders, but particularly we see all kinds of eating disorders uh, affect most commonly young women and girls compared to young men and boys. Mm-hmm. So usually an eating disorder can have an onset around the teen years and in the early 20s. And there's a lot of research and we have a lot of support from the research we have contacted that in the prevalence of eating disorders are higher on women in general in across the lifespan compared to men. So I would say that uh, in early or late teen years and early early 20s, we have probably the onset of an eating disorder. And this uh, relates to anorexia nervosa. We have another type, the bulimia nervosa. And we have also one of the commonest types now, I think it's going to be a little bit globally. We have uh, epidemiological data from U.S., the binge eating disorder. So bulimia nervosa is the kind of eating disorder that we don't have restriction of food. Mm-hmm. We have the opposite. We have binge eating episodes followed by purging. Mm-hmm. So in the binge eating uh, episodes, there is a lack of control about the food we take in. And this is usually, this involves high quantities of food during usually the span of two hours. And then these intensive binge eating incidents, they are followed by enormous guilt and shame. So the person needs to purge. And by purging, we mean the forced vomiting. I need to to get out of my system what I just ate. The use of laxatives, Mm -hmm. uh, use of diuretics, 
in order to um, get out of uh, to get rid of fluids, fasting, and also excessive exercising. And this is also the tricky part because yes. not all people can do that. Not all people can 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 have these five common um, ways to purge, but they can. Uh, use a little bit the excessive exercise in order to monitor the binge eating episodes. Mm -hmm. And this can also, the bulimia nervosa when it can go a little, little bit secretly mm -hmm. for weeks and months before the environment, the relatives, the partner, the family can understand that it's a bulimic, a bulimic incident and bulimic history here. Um, we've had some really um, insightful messages and some very touching stories coming in. We're going to be trying to feature as many people as possible between now and four o'clock. But before we um, we head over and speak to Basma, I wanted to ask you, this is a question from Linda that's come in on 4001 for you, Dr. Iona, saying, just wonder if the doctor um, believes that you ever truly recover from an eating disorder. Linda says she suffered with anorexia at 15, and when she did reach a healthy weight, she became bulimic. In 30s now, and have been a healthy weight for years, still have a lot of guilt when it comes to food. I think that's such, such a good question, because is this something that you can continue to live with and manage as you get older or do you think you can ever truly recover from an eating disorder? That's an excellent, excellent question and I have to say out of the scope of the psychiatric practice that goes over 21 years, I have to say that eating disorders are the most persisting of psychiatric conditions. Even when the symptoms of the eating disorders are successfully managed, for example, all eating disorders are related to consequences and implications and an impact on their physical health, mm -hmm. cardiovascular symptoms, anemia, electrolyte imbalance, and a lot of other issues. Even when we recover from the physical health complications, and even if we have regulated in the habits, the urges of going back or the uncertainty or the distorted body image, I'm not good enough yet. Mm -hmm. I'm not in my ideal uh, body yet. Uh, sorry, weight yet. I'm not, uh, I, I'm not doing enough. May persist for longer periods of time. And we know for sure that eating disorders, they are strongly related with feelings of insecurity, depression. It can cause depression. It can cause anxiety. So for many people, this is an, let me, let me allow me to say a lifelong battle. Mm -hmm. We can be in our 40s and 50s and still have a little bit of residual psychological factors that they can be triggered and an eating disorder can be re-emerged. So yes, I, I totally agree with the observation. Thank you, Linda, and thank you, Dr. Ionis. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is Afternoons with Helen Farmer on Dubai Eye 103.8. We will be back in conversation with consultant psychiatrist Dr. Ionis from Thrive. It's Afternoons with me, Helen Farmer. We are talking about eating disorders on the show this afternoon and I think it's great to hear from experts but I think we would be remiss to not hear it from people that have been through it um, are going through it as well. We've had messages as well. So please don't hesitate to reach out if you want to share your story or indeed if you've got any questions. We are speaking now to Basma who is bravely sharing her experiences and I can't thank you enough for your honesty and your bravery and your vulnerability. Uh, thanks for having me. How are you today? 
I'm great, actually. I, I can say that I'm a very, at a very good point in life and that I've recovered uh, successfully. <laughs> well, let's, if you wouldn't mind kind of taking us back, because you struggle with bulimia in particular. What age did that begin at, Bethany? I was 14 years old. Um, my, I had a, a really good friend who suffered with anorexia and unfortunately did not make it um, oh, in treatment. Um, her organs failed, and that's when uh, it all started for me. And you can pinpoint your changes in behavior and your attitude towards food around grief, I guess. Yes, uh, absolutely. I'm, well, at that age, I wasn't able to express that, that mm. what, that's what happened. I just found myself doing things that I could not really understand and found myself, uh, you know, eating like a monster sometimes or depriving myself from food completely. And then it's like an endless vicious cycle. What were you getting from that behavior? I mean, we hear a lot about bulimia being about releasing emotions. Did that was that the case for you? Well, uh, most of the I think a lot of it was uh, the the grief that wasn't dealt with properly, um, and all all the other emotions. Because I think as a as a little girl, that was something I've dealt with. I was hyper independent, and I wanted to to keep this image of me uh, present myself as the a strong person and mm-hmm. and I thought that was the way you do it by not sharing how you feel whether it's positive or, or negative really so this was your coping strategy exactly exactly and it, it did get me through a lot of uh, you know hardships in life uh, being the way I was but then here comes a point where you realize it's not working anymore and when was that point Basma how long did the bulimia go on for and I guess during that time when did you realize that this isn't working for me right so for I had bulimia for three years but I realized that I wanted to stop a year into it because it was taking over my life it started as okay maybe I don't want to well trigger warning whoever's listening Um, it started off once or twice a day and then it went like sometimes 10 times a day and it I was like completely um, you know I was in a a dark place I was in a dark place it sounds like some big mental health struggles there and you know trauma grief you know you're really taking on but what about your physical health during that time right so funny enough my weight did not fluctuate much because obviously you starve yourself for days sometimes and sometimes you eat a lot um my weight uh, it's like i would say maybe three kilos over and then you lose those three kilos and it's back again but nothing significant that other people noticed and did, were you noticing, were you keeping an eye on your weight? Was that a, a motivator in effect or, or was that kind of a byproduct? In, not in the beginning. In the beginning, it was never about my weight. Like, and that's, I, this is what most people uh, misunderstand about eating disorders. They think it's about weight. It's, uh, weight and all of that is just a symptom of the real problem, I believe. So, yeah, it wasn't much about my weight. But after the first year, I think I started to notice how it's affecting me. And that's when I became a bit self-conscious and body conscious, which is only natural if you're, you know, at that age. I was about I to say, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tough age, especially, you know, going through what you'd, what you'd gone through with your friends. So what was your first step then in, in terms of saying to, to yourself? I mean, sometimes the hardest conversations are, are saying things to ourselves, never mind to other people, and then reaching out for help. What did that look like initially? Right. So initially I did not reach out for help, which was a bad idea. I decided to go through it on my own um, because obviously I thought I was, you know, I can do it myself. But yeah, I think the first time I've ever talked about it, 
I told my parents about it. I think I was 17. Um, and that was a big one because what the eating disorder feeds on is, is secrecy, shame, and guilt. And silence. And if you remove that, that's like half of the problem gone because you have like other people around you who can support you and hold you accountable and, and show you the love you need. And therefore, you, you're no longer hiding uh, the thing that you're no longer hiding your suffering. And by expressing yourself and the suffering, it goes away, which is ironic, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah, you were na- naming it, owning it. Exactly. Were they surprised, your parents, when you told I them? I think they were very surprised because they were a bit suspicious why she's spending so much time in the bathroom. But they did not expect something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what did, was there a plan when she told them? And, and what did that look like? Um, there was no specific plan because they know how much I hate when someone interferes, you know. Um, but I used to watch a lot of YouTube videos on how to put yourself on that recovery road. And I have failed many times. Um, and, and I think not everything you see you can follow. Not everything you read can help you. You have to find the things that work for you. Mm-hmm. Well, what was that for you? For me, it was more about dealing with the grief and the emotional side of things because that was the real problem when you think about it. It wasn't about my weight. It wasn't about uh, the food. It it was about that uh, trauma, Mm -hmm. I would say, because it is a trauma. It is. And the the thing about trauma is how it's dealt with at the time. You know, you can have the same thing happen to two people, uh, exactly the same occurrence and exactly the same life stages and, you know, personality, everything. But if one person has that validated and understood and worked through, if not immediately, but close to the time. And then if there's a gap with the other person, my goodness, it can unravel like like you experienced. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and, and I think just a little advice for people, if they're dealing with this, um, identifying your personal triggers is such a big one because once you identify the triggers, you can sort of... Um, Uh, get your emotion you know have emotional awareness um, you know self-awareness of why I'm doing what I'm doing because there's no way you can rationalize your actions when they're so weird like you're eating patterns are like oh what are you doing girl Mm -hmm. (laughs) and you I'm sure you recognize that yourself this is is not me this is not what I want to be doing when it sounds like you know you've lost control and now and now fast forward (laughs) I'm perfectly fine yeah yeah, yeah. Um, I relapsed a couple of times when I was in college um, uh, under stress, uh, you know, all of that. It Going can- back to that coping mechanism. Exactly, exactly. Um, but I did eventually speak to a therapist in college. Um, and, and we didn't really go through like a therapy therapy sessions. We just had normal conversations, which is quite interesting that normal conversations could, you know, get you through a milestone. So it sounds like... And I think you said it so beautifully that you know, these, are, these are illnesses, these are disorders that thrive in that silence and that shame. And that's why I feel like having conversations like here are so, so valuable. And I really can't thank you enough, Basma, for coming on and, and sharing with us what, you, what, you're, uh, what you've been through and acting as honestly such an inspiration to so, so many young women and also men who have been, who've been through this and perhaps can't see the light at the end of that tunnel. But I love that advice about 
look at what's really going on. The food, that behavior is just a symptom. Thank you so, so much. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I hope it was very useful to the people it was, listening. It was this hugely is, you know, touching. Thank, thank you. you so much. Um, we've had a number of messages. We have got Dr. Ionis, consultant psychiatrist, staying with us to answer anything that might be on your mind. So um, please don't hesitate to reach out if there's anything you want to share or anything you are worried about. It is Afternoons with me, Helen Farmer. You're live on Dubai I-103.8. I just want to say a heartfelt thank you to Basma for coming in and sharing her story. We've had some lovely messages of people of support and, you know, kudos to the bravery there for sharing what she went through with bulimia. And joining us live now to answer some of the questions we've had on the text line is Dr. Ionis. He is a DHA licensed consultant psychiatrist and the medical director at Thrive Wellbeing Centre. Dr. Ionis, we've had a lot of messages, a lot of questions, and we're going to try and get through as many as we can. We're also going to be hearing from um, another couple of people who have been through eating disorders and come through the other side struggling as well. Um, I wanted to put this message to you. Um, No name on this one. And of course, it's absolutely fine. Just say no name. Saying I had bulimia and an exercise compulsion as a teenager, binge eating, throwing up, running. It stopped when I got ill with the virus and was really sick. 25 years on, I still binge eat a lot, which is common with ADHD, I believe, which I do have and occasionally purge as a stress reaction. I'm settled in a job now, in a new apartment, a lovely new relationship, um, but I have started purging again. I know this isn't a healthy response and I don't know what to do. Please be nice. I don't know how else to get what I currently need. So I wondered if you could offer up some insights to this listener talking about, about purging as a, stress, as a stress response there, stress reaction, um, and clearly recognising some of the behaviours of her past. What, what should be your first port of call um, when you are worried about your behavior around disordered eating? Thank you, Ellen. Uh, first of all, I would like to draw a line between the stress eating or the emotional eating, which is not an eating disorder, mm-hmm. and the binge eating. Overeating is when we try to feed somehow our, emotion, our emotional hunger with comfort food. But what the listener just mentioned, it's a binge eating disorder, which is quite Uh, different from the overeating in terms of the frequency, the quantities of food. In binge eating, the individual is a substantially big quantity of food during the period of two hours and usually fast, uh, usually more than a person of same age, same gender uh, would eat, fast, followed by an extreme, extreme, negative feelings of shame, of guilt, and embarrassment. Usually the binge eating happens in a dark place. Mm-hmm. Uh, the individual is alone. He doesn't binge eat with others. But this is a significant difference between binge eating and bulimia nervosa mm-hmm. in the sense that in binge eating disorder, we don't have the purging. So when the purging is involved, we have the definition of bulimia nervosa. What the listener just mentioned is that there is a comorbidity. Comorbidity with a neurodevelopmental condition, which is ADHD. And ADHD, especially when untreated, it is highly related with a lot of anxiety, a lot of stress, which is usually present throughout the day. The individual has extremely hard to manage his or her tasks in order to have a proper time management, easily, easily distracted. And when these negative feelings of not accomplishing emerge, then stress eating is the easiest coping mechanism. And usually ADHD 
is related with the emotional eating of sugar, of something sweet, which usually, instead of managing the stress, adds on. Mm -hmm. So what I should suggest, and I'm trying to be as nice as I usually am with the listeners, is that, thank you so much, Helen, is that I would suggest that the, the, the person should have an appointment to see what lies under. So if just the binge eating or the, the bulimia nervosa is the byproduct of something bigger who lies under. If it's a depression, if it's ADHD, um, if it's anxiety disorder, mm-hmm. and maybe by addressing the original comorbidity, the byproduct of binge eating may be slightly reduced. That's interesting because that really does echo what Basim was saying earlier that her bulimia came out of you know, unresolved trauma and grief around losing mm, a friend. Exactly. Um, I'm going to um, hear from Sophie now. We have had Sophie on the show before, but we recently caught up to find out how she is getting on. We're joined now by Sophie, who we have spoken to in the past, really sharing what she's been through with eating disorders and hopefully a message for light at the end of the tunnel. Sophie, you're going to university um, in March in Australia, where you're speaking to us from now. So huge congratulations. I wondered if you could kind of take us back a few years and if you could have imagined being able to to say that that was in your future and that you were going to feel physically and mentally well enough to do that well no I wouldn't have been able to like see where I am today because obviously like I was in hospital and bed rest so it was not a good time for me but like over the years I've just learned so much and grown from that experience and now that I have the opportunity to go to uni it's amazing you said that you were hospitalised. Are you able to explain for anyone that hasn't heard your story before um, what you were going through in terms of eating disorders and the amount of help that, that really got you to where you are today? Yeah, of course. So um, I was actually very underweight because I developed an eating disorder um, called anorexia and I wasn't able to, like, go to school or just perform like normal activities that like a normal child would and so I was hospitalized and like put on bed rest for around three weeks Mm -hmm. until I gained weight so I could walk without having to have a nurse or a parent by my side Mm -hmm. um and that's yeah that and then I got better thanks to an amazing psychologist and now I am here today you make it sound simple. You know, that's the 20-second rundown, but I know just how emotional this was for, for you and your family to be able to come through. Um, and yes, there is that element, of course, gaining enough weight and, and that the, the body side of you being able to leave the hospital, but it sounds like the psychological side t- you know, took a lot more work and healing. How did that expert help, help, help you kind of come to terms with why you'd got to that stage in the first place and equip you for, for life I don't want to say after an eating disorder because I think you're always going to live alongside it and it's always going to be part of your life and who you are, but for it, to help you feel like you could have a future. So what my psychologist told me when I was actually in the hospital, we used to call every day because she couldn't make it to the actual hospital, but she always made me look like at things called, we called them incentives. So we looked forward to things that I wanted to do in the future. And obviously that was things like going to uni and starting a family and traveling the world, like which are all things I wanted to do and still do, of course. And she made me set goals for myself so that I can actually get somewhere and be motivated to get somewhere in my life. And that really, really helped. 
So building up that confidence and helping you achieve things just step by step by step. And now it's all culminated in this incredible achievement of you going to university to study psychology of all things. Tell us about that decision, Sophie. So when I got a psychologist and when I recovered, I realized how much she impacted and changed my life and saved my life, honestly. So I wanted to do the same for other people. And I've just always had that in me after seeing a psychologist. I would just want to do the same thing for other people going through the same thing Mm -hmm. because it really makes a difference. You also had huge family support. And I wondered if you had any message for any parents listening today who might be recognizing signs of disordered eating in their child or are really struggling with a diagnosis and treatment. What did you need from your parents at that time? My parents did the right thing by um, calling me a psychologist. And even though, like, when they told me that I had to go see a psychologist, it was the last thing I wanted to do. And I just thought it was, like, not the right idea. But I recommend that if you see signs in this of your child, please call a psychologist and let them talk to your child because sometimes you might not say the right thing and upset them. Mm -hmm. So giving them to a person that's, like, qualified and understands what someone is going through is 100% the right choice. Mm -hmm. And what about anybody who was in your position and and struggling to see a way out and struggling to visualise what life could be like when they were if not free from an eating disorder, but certainly wasn't in the grips that um, that you were at the very worst? I would say just find something that you really, really want to do in your life, whether that's travel to a country that you've always wanted to see or start a family or pursue like a goal or career. Just focus on that and don't stop until you get it. Sophie, thank you so much. It's always so lovely to be in touch with you and I love following your adventures and your accomplishments, so please keep in touch. And my goodness, the amount of emotional intelligence and empathy you have, having been through what you have, is going to just make you an absolute legend in this field. So I'm so glad you are on something of a mission yourself to help other people. So thank you and all the very best. Hopefully in a couple of years it will be Dr. Sophie. So don't forget to come back with that hat on, okay? Thank you so much, Helen. Take care of yourself and all the best. Bye now. Sophie there, I spoke to her earlier, speaking to us from Australia. Dr. Ionis, I've got a couple of last questions before you let you get back to a very busy clinic. Now, this has come in on the text line, and I was a bit nervous about asking it, but I, I think it's a really interesting point. No name saying, is death by anorexia or any other eating disorders considered as a form of taking your own life? And I, I think that's a really pertinent question. As, as I shared earlier, a friend of mine sadly passed away from anorexia last year, and that wasn't how I framed it, but... I don't think she did want to live anymore. So I wondered what your take was as a psychiatrist. This is a very interesting topic. I believe that it um, goes a bit with boundaries with um, moral ethics and even philosophical issues Mm -hmm. about a decision of terminating life. I have to say that anorexia nervosa, a fatal outcome, has to do with the severe consequences on the physical health aspect meaning that there are a lot of systems that they can be affected and usually the individual can we can have a fatal outcome out of severe complications like, for example, multi-organ damage mm-hmm. or brain damage or even uh, heart arrhythmias that can lead to malfunction of the heart and uh, cardiac arrest. But apart from that, we know for sure out of research that anorexia nervosa is also extremely highly related 
with an increased suicide risk that mm-hmm. people with anorexia nervosa, apart from their unwillingness to get better and the severe battle that they go through and the support that they need, apart from that, it, it is associated with higher suicidal risk. So people with anorexia nervosa can commit suicide. But we, I, I would dare to say that the fatal outcome of it is mostly if there is no incidence of an active suicide attempt, okay. this is the outcome of the complications on the physical health aspects, which are not, not to be undermined. They're extremely severe. Thank you, Dr. Ines. Um, uh, I'm going to squeeze in one last question, which is saying, what is the youngest, yeah. the youngest age of anorexia um, your doctor has seen? And I think that's a really good question because as parents, it's all about awareness. And I'm not talking about scrutinising everything your child is and isn't eating, but certainly being aware of behaviours. So what is the youngest patient you, you've treated when it comes to eating disorders, Dr. Ines? Oh, you, you take me a lot, a lot of years back. When I was do, doing my residency and I was rotating in the child psychiatric service in Stockholm in Sweden, we would treat a young individual as young as six to seven years of age God. with anorexia nervosa, with avoidant restricted behavior, being extremely picky of certain types of food. And that was also, and uh, we used to work as a team and multidisciplinary teams with psychologists, with social workers, with dietitians and nutritionists. But the earlier that, that we could see uh, were it's individuals children. of six or seven. And you can imagine the, the, the impact on the schooling, on the educational procedure. These people would, would not attend school. There were a lot of struggles and uh, frustrated parents about why, why, why my, my, my child is acting like that. Mm. But with good outcome, I have to say. Thank you so, so much for your time this afternoon. And thank you yeah, again to fun. everyone that's been in touch to share stories. We've had a number of people asking about you, Dr. Ionis. Um, you are the Medical Director, Consultant, Psychiatrist at Thrive Wellbeing Centre. I'm going to let you get back to your very busy clinic. Um, we will catch up very soon, though. Dr. Ionis, thank you for your time. And if you do want his details, just send me a message saying doctor, and I will be very, very happy to send that link and indeed connect you. We really are spoiled at the minute in terms of the social and sporting calendar. The Mabadala Abu Dhabi Open will be the first WTA 500 event coming to the nation's capital. It starts on the 5th of February and it's the 50th anniversary of the WTA. So what's changed around women in sport and leadership during that time? We're joined, joined now by Vicky Gunnison. She is the director of tennis at IMG and the tournament director. And Vicky, I cannot thank you enough for making time for us. because I'm pr- pretty sure you're very busy right now. How are you? Hi, hi, Helen. Pleasure to uh, to be on today with you. And uh, yeah, we're thrilled to bring the first ever permanent WTA 500 tournament to Abu Dhabi what? very shortly. It's going to be a brilliant one. We're really excited here at Dubai. For all tennis fans and anyone that loves their sport, why is it so important to bring this tournament to the UAE? And what can we expect from the new event? This is really a milestone achievement. Abu Dhabi has wanted a permanent uh, tennis tournament, tour tournament for a while, and we're able to bring it, which which marks just a tremendous milestone for Abu Dhabi. Um, and, and the fact that it's a big event, WTA 500, where the players get to collect uh, big points uh, early on in the season, 
is amazing. For the WTA, this this is great as well because it sets up a whole Middle East swing mm -hmm. of tournaments. Uh, so it's going to be the best players in the world. Uh, we have four top 10 players and 10 top 20 players in the field. So just phenomenal players coming to Abu Dhabi in just about a week. A week, <laughs> a week, a week's time. It's going to be at Zaid Sports City. Go on, drop some names for us. Who can we be expecting to take to the court? We have Anse Jabeur, number two in the world, uh, who had a tremendous 2022 uh, finalist at both the uh, Wimbledon and the US Open. She's just a very popular player here, being the first Muslim and Arab player yeah, amazing, um, amazing. to be ranked two mm -hmm. in the world and to make it to a Grand Slam final. We have Garbinia Muguruza, who we just announced today. She made it through a wild card. And she's former world number one and two-time Grand Slam champion. We've also as got well. a Dubai native as well, I understand. We've uh, got Paula Badosa as well. So it's going to be brilliant. I want to talk about you if you don't mind, because I find it so fascinating to hear a little bit about how people got to where they were, especially when we look at women in sport and women in the industry of sport. Tell us a little bit about your path to this role. Director of tennis at IMG. That sounds like a dream job for so many. How did you get there, Vicky? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled. I've had a lot of uh, headwinds. I, I've come from a tennis background myself and was lucky by the fact that uh, Billie Jean King and uh, many of the role models uh, from tennis uh, had really paved the way for us women to have an opportunity. Started with Title IX in the U.S., mm -hmm. where uh, women were given equal scholarships and got a scholarship at the University of Oregon to play tennis. And uh, so that was just huge what she did. She she was part of creating the entire WTA tour 50 years ago, and uh, it's really paved the way for many of of us uh, women and for for the, obviously for the players too. Uh, women's tennis uh, is now the most watched uh, female sport in the world, and uh, so many players have benefited from that. You look at any Forbes list, um, and you see it's it's full of WTA players uh, making the top list of top female, most play, paid players and uh, most marketable players as well. I have to say, you're absolutely right. I don't think about it. We think about other sports being the big earners and golf being the big one in the, in the UAE at the minute coming up over this weekend. Um, but maybe I should be getting my daughters into tennis. <laughs> um, <laughs> tell us a little bit about why you wanted to work in sport. What do you enjoy about it in particular? I think it's mainly the, the people and mm -hmm. um, phenomenal industry, great people all around and um, the opportunities are vast. Um, it's a chance to travel and see the world and meet like-minded like people. Um, it's a lot of adrenaline. <laughs> I'm sure and, it is, uh, especially now in this last week before, before the tournament starts. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about how you're mentoring other women in the industry. And I guess to any teens or parents listening today who think, do you know what? My, my, my daughter loves sport. She might not have what it takes necessarily to be an elite athlete or competitor, but she would love to work in the industry. What kind of opportunities are available and, and how are you helping other young women take their place there? 
this is such an important topic and that's something that we're working hard every day to do to to mentor the people in our teams i also think that both me and, and also the players have an important role of uh, encouraging each other and i think what again going back to billy Jinking, what she's done for all of us uh, is remarkable and um, that created the opportunities for the likes of maria sharapova serena and venus williams and Naomi Osaka, et cetera. And uh, they have all, including Austria Burr, been very important role models for the rest of the world. I think what Austria Burr has done in the Arabic world, Muslim world, and just showing everybody that it's possible to have it all to be a successful tennis player. And uh, that that's really what we all need to um, to see, right? To, to know it's possible. Exactly. And, how to get there? Yeah, because you 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 can't you can't. I mean, someone has to be the first. But I think for many of us, you know, you can't be it until you see it. You need to have someone think, okay, she's she's doing it. She, this is this is an option to me, um, and it doesn't need to be this kind of abstract, faraway dream. You know, there are there are ways and means, and you think know, you're. Your proof of that, director of tennis, what a job. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about the tournament um, in terms of what do we as spectators, tennis fans, need to know about about coming along? And apart from those amazing players on the court, what else can we expect, Vicky? It's going to be great ambience in general. There's going to be things to do for the entire family. Uh, the event starts with qualifying on the 5th, uh, which is a Sunday, 5th of February. And we have lots of great catering and food options for everybody and lots of fun activities as well. Um, tickets start at uh, 50 Deerham Monday and uh, Tuesday. And we also have kids going for free in these early rounds as awesome. well. Um, lots of fun. Uh, matches start, main draw starts at 3 p.m. in the afternoon. And uh, yeah, really packed with really top players in the world coming. So uh, eight days of uh, action-packed events. You'll you'll be able to get close up to the stars uh, to watch them practice, play their matches, and you're also going to be able to hear them on Q and A's, uh, which will be in the village every day. Well, as I said, really value your time, especially at such a busy time. Um, on the website, it's mabadalaabadabiopen.com. Nine days, 18 hours, 16 minutes and 37 seconds. So, Vicky, you better crack on. Um, you can, of course, find out more there and some more big names being announced all the time. Vicky Gunnison, really appreciate it. Really appreciate your insights, your passion and all the things that are happening behind the scenes to make us enjoy those fantastic days of tennis. Thank you so, so much. Get back to work. Take care, Vicky. Vicky's the director of tennis at IMG, the tournament director. And as we said, it's all happening there at Zide Sports City um, in just nine days. And thank you for downloading this episode of the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. Don't forget, you can subscribe. You'll get it direct to your phone as soon as it's out. And you can listen to me live on Dubai I 103.8, Monday to Friday between 2 and 5 p.m. You've been listening to a Dubai I 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai I in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiI1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.